0: Hello and welcome to Longevity Now, the place for all your news and views of life extension from around the world. Have you been wondering about the change in ICOR's business strategy? Have you been contemplating the uncertain status of C60 as a supplement? Have you been pondering the current state of rejuvenation research? Well, listen in, this podcast is packed with an incredible amount of detail about the many research activities ongoing at ICOR Therapeutics. And now I would like to welcome to the Longevity Now podcast someone who doesn't need an introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's Kelsey Moody, CEO of i Therapeutics. Welcome to the program, Kelsey. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me back. All right. First question right off the bat. I went to your website. There was an announcement a few weeks ago, a change in business strategy. It sure looks a lot different, you know, from a superficial level, looked like kind of a company in the past, i that was going to develop uh, new therapeutics. Now, it looks like a contract research organization. What led to the change, and is it a complete changeover from what you were doing before, or does it kind of flow with previous work? Sure. Um,
1: so the, uh, all the changes that you're describing are simply a change in marketing. Um, since its inception, ICORE has existed as a centralized, uh, company, um, that does preclinical research and development. And kind of our broad goal has been to put online all of the infrastructure that's necessary, uh, to go from any sort of discovery stage program, the sort of, uh, technology that one might license out of a university, for example, Package it into a, uh, in, in, into some sort of commercializable program, uh, and then really pursue FDA approval through that, uh, for that by going through a, a traditional translational research process. And that's always how ICOR has been set up, um, on the back end, uh, f- from the business perspective. Over the last few years, we've identified that a number of companies are going virtual. It's very uncommon for pharmaceutical companies now to really set up brick and mortar shops. Rather, they exist as virtual entities that subcontract their research out to uh to the brick and mortar labs. Um and we've also noticed that a lot of companies in the anti-aging space in particular have some interesting ideas that might be worth development, um but they really need a uh, a group that kind of specializes in this kind of complicated uh, regulatory process. So we've slowly been taking on clients over time, and we've we've simply rebranded i Therapeutics as a contract research organization to clearly delineate our various business units from our intramural research programs, which have their own separate IP holding companies and their own separate branding, uh, to i Therapeutics proper, um, which does work for hire for those organizations as as well as third parties. Okay.
0: Okay, so it really uh, since its founding, I mean, you're basically were a contract research organization, now you're just saying, "Hey, that's what we are."
1: That's correct. And it also makes, uh, makes for a much cleaner story as we're, uh, developing, uh, these different business units. You know, it's a, it's a very clear conversation when we're working with investors, uh, who might be interested in, um, a particular program that ICOR is working on, um, or they might be interested in contracting with ICOR on, on other fronts. Um, and certainly as, uh, as we take the next steps to start raising, uh, series A funding and, and, and really going with larger investment rounds, um, it's important that there's a, a clear paperwork trail in place uh, that defines the relationships between um, I-Corps and, and its other entities, okay. the, the, the family.
0: Right. Uh, now, you mentioned the other business units. Could you briefly describe uh, those uh, functions, uh, those um, those units? Uh, sure. So there's
1: um, three other companies in the i family. Each are uh, very distinct in terms of their scope and uh, research objectives. There's Lysoclear, of course, which is the spin-out of SENS Foundation's Macular Degeneration LysosENS program, and that's focused on developing an enzyme therapy for atrialid macular degeneration and Stargardt's macular degeneration. Our uh, newest program is intoxerine and this is a small molecule uh, drug discovery in initiative that's focused on developing senolytics that target the FOXO4-P53 interaction. And we're also doing some development work with uh, Buckminster Fulurine or C60 within that entity. Um, And then lastly, we have RecombaPure, which is uh, currently being developed as a, uh, it's really a suite of protein chemistry tools uh, for research scientists.
0: Okay, so let's get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty of uh, some of the research that has been going on. Of course, uh, the AMD research was uh, for, uh, you know, one of the main things that uh, started with i Therapeutics, licensed out of the SENS organization. Um, now, one of our regular listeners was wondering about Lyphofusen. You know, Originally, uh, that was kind of the target. Now, it seems as though it's you know lipofusin what people thought it was is really a lot of different things and just to be clear you're not specifically working on lipofusin but just kind of the amd uh, is is that research right but you're targeting the metabolic waste that accumulates in the eye right
1: yeah so uh lipofusin or lipofuscin is uh it, it, it is a generic name that can encompass uh, lots of different things depending on which part of the body um, you're talking about when you use the term. Um, In the case of age-related macular degeneration, uh, lipofuscin is an uh, intracellular uh, aggregate that accumulates inside of the lysosomes of a particular type of cell called the RPE or retinal pigmented epithelial cells. So, this is a uh, cell type that's very important for photoreceptor turnover um, and it it, it exists deep within the eye and is, is really essential for a healthy eye and metabolic function. And what happens as we age is that there's an accumulation of various junk components, uh, which are termed lipofuscin, um, within the lysosomes of these RPE cells. The the majority of the lipofuscin, uh, as it's been characterized, um, is a vitamin A derivative that's uh, fluorescent, or rather a series of vitamin A derivatives. Uh, I think there's something like 13 different chemically defined species that exist in this lipofuscin fuskin that are uh fluorophores um probably a number of additional minor components
0: hold on there uh, just a second 13 different varieties
1: yeah so it's not it's not a single target but an entire mixed group of different chemical species That's i see correct.
0: are they related close enough maybe you were getting to this is are they related close enough to each other that the enzymes you're working on to break it down uh will target most of them or is that kind of a, a little roadblock
1: uh, well, that was indeed the question. So um, we showed that we were uh, that the enzyme therapy that we're developing can efficiently degrade A2E, which is probably the uh, the best characterized and best studied of the of the numerous lipofuscin fluorophores. But then the question came up: a a definitive link between A2E itself and macular degeneration, uh, at least age-related macular degeneration, has yet to be demonstrated. Um, the the mechanism of disease progression for dry AMD is still a low unclear. So the question was, can this enzyme be used for other lipofuscin fluorophores and not just A2E? So we went back to the lab and we've actually shown that every major lipofuscin fluorophore we've synthesized and characterized in-house and uh, our our enzyme therapy that we're developing is actually capable of degrading all of them. Um, This does make sense as they are chemically similar, they're all uh, vitamin A derivatives, uh, but that's very encouraging um, that the enzymes have uh, broad specificity against these substrates
0: okay uh now on to some kind of speculative (laughs) questions about uh your amd drug development um and if you don't know that's fine um some people were wondering what kind of timeline can you can we expect before we get into clinical trials for what you're working on
1: Yeah, so, uh, that's a loaded question, but I will try to answer it by explaining, uh, our thought process as to how we're trying to attack those. So when we think about diseases like macular degeneration, they're very difficult to target clinically because the progression is so long, you don't know who's gonna progress, who's not going to as they have the different stages of the disease. And this problem is really confounded when you don't have a clear mechanistic understanding of the underpinnings of the disease. So we have two different things that we're uh, pursuing in parallel. First, we're certainly continuing to go through our translational process, and we're currently drafting documentation uh, for a pre-IND meeting with FDA, so this is where you can go to FDA, ask them questions, explain your proposed uh, trajectory to the clinic, and they'll weigh in on the plan and give you feedback um, so that you can, you know, go through the regulatory process. And this is a very important step for a disease like dry or the early stage uh, age-related macular degeneration um, because none of the animal models, the the efficacy models, uh, are really all that good, and they're not; uh, they haven't been predictive yet in any sort of translational program. So it's really Important that we get FDA to uh, to weigh in on our path before we move forward, and we're preparing uh, for that meeting now. The other thing that we're doing is, is doing some work to really see if we can make some progress on the underlying mechanisms linking lipofuscin to age-related macular degeneration. What we think is happening is that the lipofuscin fluorophores are actually not directly cytotoxic per se but they interfere with the cholesterol metabolism of these RPE cells, of these cells that are essential for, for photoreceptor survival and for the eye to function properly. And uh, we think that the lipofuscin components might dysregulate cholesterol processing in these cells and cause a massive upregulation of the cholesterol synthesis pathways, which results in the cells just dumping cholesterol. And the earliest clinical sign of age-related macular degeneration, or one of the, I'll say, easiest to detect early clinical signs, uh, is the accumulation of extracellular, so not in the cell anymore, but outside of the cell, um, aggregates called drusen. Uh, and your eye doctor, just looking in the back of your eye with an ophthalmoscope, is able to see these. And it turns out that these drusen, uh, 40 or 50 percent of the the mass of these things is actually a sterified cholesterol. So it seems as though, um, in in our estimation, that lipofuscin fluorophores might cause cholesterol dysregulation that contributes significantly to drusen formation. And then it's the drusen and the immune system responding against it that really kicks off the 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 whole
0: degeneration.
1: Okay. Correct. So we're doing a lot of mechanistic work to try to understand the relationship there and make sure that the targets uh, that we're going after with our enzyme therapy um, are indeed effective in, uh, in-, in restoring those pathways to normal function.
0: Yeah, it seems to me, just a thought off the top of my head here, that... There is never a simple magic bullet when it comes to aging and (laughs) rejuvenation. Every time uh, you dig a little deeper, it seems like the whole process is a little more complicated. But uh, it's good to know that uh, you're discovering new things about AMD. Sure. And
1: I I would like to add one minor point, which is these are the sorts of considerations that are very Uh, non-obvious. There's a lot of new uh, high-tech and software investors that are now uh, moving aggressively into into the life sciences, which I think is fantastic. But when you have uh, more of a clear understanding of some of these underpinnings, they can really inform the business plan and the the translational plan. Um, So, for instance, uh, suppose that we do come to the conclusion that cholesterol dysfunction is kind of the the, the pathway here um, one would assume then that patients, That have genetic predisposition for familial hypercholesterolemia, so a a genetic condition where they have elevated cholesterol, might be more susceptible to macular degeneration and more likely to progress aggressively if they have it. And in fact, this is uh, this is what we know from the uh, clinical trial literature, and this is what we know um, from from studying these sorts of cohorts that this is in fact true. So when we think about diseases like macular degeneration uh, that take quite a while to progress and present uh, very differently between different patients, Um, if we can isolate a group like patients that might be at high risk of progression and use those, you're talking a shorter clinical trial, you're talking a less expensive clinical trial, and you can get that answer of whether your drug is safe or effective um, faster. So these are the sorts of things that we're constantly um, thinking about and working on uh, as we try to develop our programs.
0: Okay, and of course, you know, at Longevity, a lot of people are biohackers. They're willing to try anything to really slow down aging. And you couple that with the fact that you can pretty much buy anything around the world if you talk to the right uh, chemistry professor or uh, research outfit or, uh, you know, a producer of various therapeutics. You can order anything, and people would tend to wonder, okay, perhaps you could take something to slow the progression of amd say because it's subclinical now but it takes a long time to develop through your life if you started taking something now maybe it would just kind of delay the development of that i mean i don't think we know enough about it uh that you could take anything now really to prevent it from developing uh what do you think about that people would you know would tend to think, hey, I might as well just start taking this enzyme now and and, and delay the development of AMD. Um,
1: so actually, this is an area where uh, where supplements actually come in. The current state of the art, if you will, for treatment of dry, so the early onset form um, of uh, age-related macular degeneration is a supplement formulation that has been uh, clinically tested uh, to be effective in reducing the rate of progression and um, risk of progression oh, for great. patients I didn't, with the early stage. I didn't know yeah. that, yeah. Uh, it's arids, the uh, arids formulation um, and, and, of course, other precautionary things. Uh, we, we think a lot of what drives uh, atrial related macular degeneration is oxidative damage. So doing things like uh, stopping smoking, for example, very, very effective, actually, in, in reducing risk of progression.
0: Okay. And then uh, do you think that there's any uh, application to uh, any therapeutic that would treat AMD? Would that have any other beneficial effects? elsewhere in the body since we typically get metabolic waste and you know aggregates that develop in other parts and our other organs is there any application you think outside of amd
1: uh, so that's an excellent question, Justin, and uh, one that we'll have to touch on in a follow-up interview, unfortunately. Okay. Um, we are looking at the possibility of generalizing our enzyme lead against different targets. Um, all of our focus up until this point has really been just on the uh, the macular degeneration applications, um, but we are starting to look at uh, possible applications um, in lysosomal storage diseases or uh, perhaps other uh, diseases of accumulation. Like like atherosclerosis. Um, we don't really have any clear indication whether we can repurpose this technology for those purposes or not, um, but that's something that we're certainly interested in and look forward to exploring.
0: Okay, let's move on to C60, the fullerene research. Of course, many longevity members know that ICOR is one of the very few organizations in the world investigating potential therapeutic uses of C60 in oil and a C60 oil conjugate and one of the big news items last year was that or at least you released some information saying that there was potential for cancer to develop with poorly formulated or c60 in oil that had uh, various toxic uh, subspecies of c60 that it might cause cancer that you had seen that in mice but ICOR never did publish anything on that and people were wondering are you going to publish a paper on what you found in that initial research, or is there something coming up Uh, Sure. So
1: we can speak to that a little bit. First of all, uh, Icor uh, most certainly stands by every claim that we've posted on longevity pertaining to the stability risks associated with uh, C60 in olive oil. In our hands, when light exposed for uh, a period of time, we actually found the C60 in olive oil to be acutely lethal in laboratory mice. And we we also have some evidence that there uh, may be exacerbation of cancer progression in these. Sorts of things. What the longevity community should keep in mind is that these findings are not altogether unsurprising. It's known that C60 is a, a rather volatile compound uh, that can react readily with light and, and oxygen. C60 has been explored for a number of different applications uh, as, a, as a sensitizer for targeting uh, cancer cells to actually containing chemotherapeutic molecules. Lots of different applications in the the life sciences that C60 might be useful for, but a recurring problem is this idea that it's not very soluble, it's not readily bioavailable, and in the olive oil and oil type formulations, it seems to be plagued with uh, stability issues. So, uh, the major focus of our research, uh, I, I I would love to just publish a a paper that looks at the toxicity of C60 in olive oil, but that's not really going to get us to where we need in terms of a a proper scientific uh, publication because um, I think most scientists in this space would consider that to be a pretty obvious thing. What we're instead looking at is, are there ways that we can solubilize C60 in something that is not olive oil to eliminate these stability concerns over time? Characterizing all of the potential breakdown products of C60 in olive oil uh, is, is rather daunting because just like with our Lipofuscan conversation with macular degeneration, you're not looking at a single chemical species that that comes out of this degradation over time. You're looking at, at, at dozens of primary degradants and perhaps hundreds of secondary degradants, sure. which, which me, makes um, it really difficult okay.
0: to uh, that brings me up to a follow-up question that a, another podcast listener asked uh, is, what about different types of oil? You mentioned you're trying to find something that's you know uniform, that can solubilize uh, C60. Uh, other people have wondered about avocado oil, coconut oil, MCT oil. I guess if they are plant-based, they're probably going to have a lot of different Things in them besides just the specific fatty acids. So I would anticipate they might seem to see the same types of problems uh, as olive oil with C60. What do you think about that?
1: Um, I definitely think all of these things are worthy of of scientific studies. We are interested in particular when we look at something that we want to uh, attempt to develop for any sort of clinical application. Um, There's certain qualities that we're looking for. We certainly want something uh, preferably that is chemically defined rather than something that's obtained um, from a natural source. And the reason for that is uh, scalability. Um, If you want to do large scale, manufacturing of a, of a drug or a diagnostic product or something like that, that that's intended for, uh, for for administration to humans, you really need something that you can quality control on a large batch based system. Um, if you have something, you know, we think about wine, for example, just the, the variability that can exist in wine uh, based on what the weather did that particular year, even within the same vineyard, within the same, uh, th- these sorts of mu- seemingly minor differences can actually have significant effects um, of of the quality of the product that's being produced. So we're less interested in looking at different types of, you know, vegetable and and, and these sorts of oils, um, although that's something that I do think is worthwhile. Um, And we're really focused on uh, on a variety of proprietary, uh, chemically defined carriers that might be suitable uh, for these applications.
0: Okay, one of our listeners also wondered if there was any other orthogonal type research uh, endeavors that you would uh, go with C60 as you know. People who have been supplementing with it uh, claim a lot of different anecdotal effects. Of course, as is typical with some sort of new potential supplement, you know, you've got the cancer research, you've got the longevity research in mice. Is there any other type of uh, avenue that you thought you, uh, Icor might pursue with C60?
1: Um, yes, unfortunately, I can't talk about that in detail, but your uh, uh, your, your poster is uh, absolutely correct, and that's exactly the right way to be thinking about these questions. Back to, again, the macular degeneration or Alzheimer's conversation, if you want to take a product and develop it for human use as a therapeutic, You can go after sort of these chronic long-term age-associated diseases for your therapeutic indications, but for your first indication for a new substance that hasn't gone through any level of FDA approval yet, going after some sort of uh, acute shorter-terms indication is definitely the way that you want to go. So, what I can say is that we have a number of uh, disease indications that we're we're studying, um, and and evaluating. And hopefully that'll be something I can speak to in further detail, you know, later on, uh, maybe maybe in mid-2018 or so.
0: Okay, yeah, off the top of my head, uh, it seems like you have some C60 research in progress right now that you had briefly mentioned online that it was going to be completed sometime in the spring of 2018. Just remind me what that was.
1: I'm not sure exactly what I would have referred to. We have uh, a number of different ongoing studies um, looking at the effects of C60 in in various disease okay. uh, models, as well as uh, for for a few non-therapeutic applications okay. as well. So we've got a lot going
0: on in that. Oh, great, great, good to hear. Uh, the one, the final question on the C60 is: Are you, or do you know of anyone that is trying to perfectly replicate the original body study that? kind of kicked off the whole C60 potential therapeutic, you know, buzz that was out there.
1: I am not aware of anyone um that is uh, attempting to replicate those findings. We have some studies that I would describe as related on going in-house, uh, but they're nothing that I'm able to comment on at the moment, unfortunately, although I'm sure that's going to drive your, your listeners up a wall. I apologize for
0: that. <laughs> well, I, I know they, they understand, though. I mean, I understand from a business perspective that, yes, there's only certain things that you can say at certain times, and from a scientific perspective, too. You just can't speculate before the results are in. I would like to
1: uh, to, to, to make a little bit of a follow-up Point though, um, from our perspective, this stability issue seems to be something that is, in our estimation, worthy uh, of the bulk of our uh, of our efforts and of our time as far as C60 research is concerned. I noticed that there were some users that that seemed to think that FDA is is fine with C60, or that there's some level of uh, safety that's confirmed for C60, or that C60 can can be consumed and it's not an issue and that it would be up to the governments to prove otherwise because C60 is a dietary supplement. I would like to point out that that is uh, entirely and completely factually inaccurate. The United States government um, established uh, grass status, generally regarded as safe, in uh, in I think it was like 1958, and they basically had a grandfather clause where components of food stuff that was used in the in the regular uh, food supply prior to that date uh, were kind of grandfathered in as uh, products that could be uh, packaged and sold as dietary supplements. FDA has established that for anything uh, that did not exist in the food chain uh, or the, the food supply prior to that date, the the determination of safety was the responsibility of the manufacturer of the product. Um and there is an FDA process in place for demonstrating that a new product, uh, a new chemically, you know, a new chemical like C60, it's it's not a supplement, it's not a drug candidate, it's a chemical that has not been evaluated in any sort of serious uh you know safety setting or or with long-term stability data. Um and FDA has held that. that responsibility lies with the manufacturer c60 was first synthesized in 1985 i think it was and the place where you most commonly find it is in like chimney soot so that's hardly something that one would consider a, a food Love stuff product right um, yeah right. so um that's that's not to say that um you know i don't have any specific Opinions about that. We're not selling C60 and olive oil, nor do we intend to ever do that. Um, and 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 what users of the forum choose to do or not to do with information that we provide is is entirely their prerogative. But we do feel a sense of social um, and 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 ethical responsibility when we see that a product may not be stable in certain conditions in general handling, and it is potentially so unstable as to cause acute lethality in mice, um, we do feel a responsibility to at least put that on people's radars for uh, for consideration. Um, so, you know, just so people are aware, uh, that is a thing and something to yes. think about. And
0: everyone uh, should be very thankful uh, of ICOR's research and putting that out there. Okay, finally, I wanted to know about your journey from being a student to a researcher at SENS organization and now uh, the leader of a rejuvenation company or a you know therapeutic company. What would you say to new people that are maybe starting out, interested in rejuvenation science, maybe going to university, maybe starting their own company? What is the key thing you've learned in the last five or six years that could help someone who's just starting out?
1: I'd say a combination of things. One, uh, biology is very, very complicated, and it often behaves in ways uh, that are very unpredictable. And one of the shifts that i has made um, a- a- as a broader institution has been on uh, really going from, you know, okay, let's look at aging as this, you know, whatever big picture thing, but we're really focused now on starting to study the mechanistic underpinnings some of these uh, some of these age-associated processes, and if you look at the companies that are having the most success in the space, everyone points to uh, Unity, for example, um, as being a company that's really trying to understand cellular senescence and develop targeted drugs that are able to go after um, these very particular mechanisms. That is what you see with successful companies, companies that have an understanding of the, the molecular and mechanistic underpinnings of the processes that they're going at, uh, going after. Uh, this is an essential component to being able to develop uh, drugs through traditional means. Aging is not recognized as a disease by FDA. You can't get an anti-aging drug or make one. So you need to go after specific diseases. And if you have a mechanistic understanding of the underlying process that you're looking to interrupt, and that process is conserved in other diseases, um, you know you can pursue a development path that might get you there faster and cheaper and and get your rapid go, no-go sort of decision points um, more efficiently.
0: Oh, okay. Um, So it's really, you can't expect to go into it with some sort of big picture, big mission statement that says, aging, we're going to cure it uh, without specifics. You would say uh, very specific, targeted aspects of aging that are understood well. You would be good to start a company focused on just that, and it would be perhaps an easier path.
1: Yeah, and, and this is what we see a lot as well. Uh, you know, we certainly do a lot of uh, a, a lot of technical diligence for uh, you know for different investors and even foundations and that sort of thing. Um, and the uh, the the projects that have a good mechanistic understanding of what's going on um, are the projects that tend to be the most successful. The companies that are the most successful, at least on a, on, on a technical point. And if you understand the Mechanistic underpinnings; uh, it makes it easier to pivot, and it's just a, a more coherent company plan. And 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 we do this with with a lot of uh, w- with all of our things too. Uh, one of the most recent examples um, is uh, so, so we have officially entered the synolytic space i uh, uh founded Intoxerine Incorporated, which is our again small molecule drug discovery program. A lot of focus has been placed on C sixty, but actually the bulk of our resources and effort been on doing um high throughput screen to identify uh chemically defined small molecules that can disrupt FOXO four P fifty three interaction. Okay. All right. And as we went through that development pathway, um, we had a, a very aggressive goal. So normally when you do a high throughput screen of this type, what will happen is scientists will take small fragments of the target protein. And the value um, of going, uh, and they'll have the the two fragments, say a fragment of P53 and a a fragment of FOXO4, and they'll develop an assay where you can tell whether they're bound together or separated. You dump that slurry on tons of different compounds and see if they separate. Those assays work well in that they're relatively inexpensive and you can make fragments of proteins on proper scale in microbial systems like E. coli so it's scalable when you're doing fragments it's kind of like evaluating the quality of a used car by looking at a three inch by three inch section of it. Um, The part that you're looking at may or may not be representative of the entire car and in a similar way looking at fragments of proteins and how their interactions are disrupted or not um, may or may not be relevant uh, to that interaction. We have a proprietary technology that enables us on scale to create full-length proteins uh, and study those in a high-throughput screening capacity in a way that nobody else can. So, for example, P53, very complicated protein. It exists as a homotetramer in vivo, can't express it in appreciable quantities in E. coli, and trying to make it in uh, mammalian cells is... uh, Uh, It is just not scalable for a high-throughput screen market rate, we have manufactured over $20 million worth of P53 um, in the last month for pennies because of our proprietary technology. And because we're a very mechanistic focused company, we're able to look at the interaction of P53 and FOXO4 in a way that we don't believe anyone else in the world is capable of doing right now, at least certainly no one that I'm aware of.
0: Well, will tell you what, that does sound quite promising. In the scenolytic space, and a great example of uh, an opportunity that arose for new business. Uh, you know, a specific thing that a company can focus on or someone uh, could start out with, uh, and that is profitable.
1: Yeah, that was, uh, it, it was a very fortuitous finding the, uh, the P53 foxo 4 interaction. Um, we have a lot of experience in, in doing drug discovery and development, um, in the, uh, P53 space specifically. Um, so having a, a foxo FOX04 interaction come up as a, as a druggable target, um, was right in our wheelhouse and something that we're, uh, we're really enthusiastic about, uh, discussing more in the near future.
0: All right. Kelsey Moody, CEO of i Therapeutics, thanks so much for joining us on the Longevity Now podcast.
1: Thank you, Justin.
0: Progress toward real rejuvenation can seem quite slow, but as you have heard in this podcast, the building blocks to launch future therapies are being put into place. In closing, I would like to thank all of the members for your continued support of Longevity. Through your yearly contributions and patronage of Longevity Forum advertisers, we continue to support high-quality labs such as i Therapeutics. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.